I find it really difficult because I've come from it a little bit as well. Is this hustle culture and just get on with it and come on, man up. And do you know what? I'm kind of done with it. Like I really am. I'm much more about working smart now, leaning into what makes you happy. Meet Scott Thomas. Scott's the director of the social PR, co-founder of the wellness brand Food for Thoughts and a former Love Island contestant. His family are well known in Manchester. Scott's dad was the music promoter and musician Dougie James and his brothers Ryan and Adam are actors who starred in Coronation Street and Emmerdale. Scott began his career hosting exclusive nights in Manchester. From there he built up his companies starting with Selfie Sticks to now running three highly successful businesses. He's a grafter who's always striving, not just in business, but in his personal life too. I wanted to find out about what it was like growing up as a brainy one in a family of performers, how he deals with the rough and tumble of life, and how has Manchester supported him in all his adventures. I'm Lisa Morton, and this is We Built This City, the podcast celebrating the people who put the heart into modern Manchester. Scott, thanks for joining me on We Built This City. Thank you so much for having me. So we first met when we were at the gym at Ultimate Performance with you and your brothers when I started weightlifting seven years ago. And those training sessions were extremely noisy when you lot came into the gym. Wow, yeah. You did take over. And um, and that was kind of a, a time in your life as well where you had a lot of stuff going on, didn't you? What were you up to then? That actually was one of the, um, the most poignant moments in my life, actually, because I actually stopped drinking for three months at that time to do UP Fitness. And that was the first time in my life that I had literally stopped drinking for any period of time. And it was amazing. I felt unstoppable and so many different opportunities started to come my way, even at this short period of time. And that's when Love Island actually approached me during sort of like the six week period that I was doing it. I was like, wait a second, if they've asked me to do it now and I'm about to be in the best shape of my life, I've got to do this. So yeah, I remember that time in my life. It was really tough as well because I was a massive party boy. I mean, that's when I was about 27 years of age and I was literally been partying for about five, six years hosting events in Manchester. And I was really finding it difficult to sort of break away from that scene, even though I was kind of frustrated. But it's really poignant that you mentioned that because I've forgotten about how much of a big moment that was. But it wasn't a long enough period of time for me to make any sort of big changes. It was just like a glimpse of what life could be like. But the same for me, just to be surrounded by such positive people and to start to lift weights, which I still do now, I've not left, I still train there. Just an amazing time. And I just love the energy that was in that, that place. And it was good to see, I remember um, how much of a kind of a journey you went on then. And I've always been inspired. I kind of watched you in that period of time. We've chatted a few times, done some work with you, with your great team at Social PR. And obviously we've now so chuffed that we're working with you on your podcast. And so you're a born and bred Mancunian. Born yes, in Withenshaw, you're a proud man, and you're a, a proud family man. So just tell me what it was like as a young lad growing up in Manchester. My childhood was a little bit sort of split between two different areas. So I spent the first six years of my life in Cheadle with my mum and my dad and my two brothers on a little street called Massey Street. And then I remember my mum and my dad sort of hardly ever been together officially. Um, but there was a moment where my mum met my stepdad and he was from Walkdenway. So we ended up moving to Salford, Eccles, 
And I spent six till 12 years old in a completely different area. And then we moved back when I was 12. So when I say I'm from Manchester, it's a little bit confusing because I've got a really strong Manc accent. But if I'm, I live in Cheadle, which is a little bit more like sort of Cheshire based. But I'm really proud about that side of living in Salford. There's something about Salford and being from that area that everyone's really sort of proud about. And then also I went to school in Wally Range. I went to William Hume Grammar School. So I never really felt sort of refined to one area. I think Manchester as an area is just such a big, broad place. And I think it covers so many different areas as well. But I never really felt like I was from one particular area, if that makes sense. And I'm born in Manchester, but I grew up in Salford. So right. I've got a massive, you know, my heart is in Salford and the you know, people there are incredible, aren't they? So did you go to school um, in Wally Range then? We, did you live there or did you have to go and travel across? No, so literally I, have to, I used to have to travel across. Yeah. So basically we lived in um, Monton at the time. And as a child, me and Adam, even though we were twins, we always went to separate schools because I was always classed as the academic one, the brainy one, the professor in my family. So um, when it came to going to high school, Adam went to a local school around the corner and then I went to whichever high school I could get into and I got a scholarship to William Hume Grammar. So obviously my mum and um, stepdad were like, you're going to go there because it's going to be cheaper. But yeah, this school's in Wally Range. It's a private grammar school, pretty much on the edge of Moss Side as well. And it was um, about half an hour from my house every day on a bus journey. But that was pretty standard back then for the private grammar school kids. They'd always travel far to their schools. But it was a massive eye-opener because it was such a multicultural school. And I'm so grateful that I went there because I actually learned a lot about different races, different ethnicities, and especially with my brother and him going to a different school. I felt like that school really sort of gave me the education on so many different life lessons. Mm. And I was really grateful I actually went there. Is that where you got your love of reading? Because you're a big reader, aren't you? Do you know what? I always studied really hard in school. And I was always really academic, but one of my teachers called it a hinterland because I could have gone to Oxford or Cambridge. He said, you know, you, you can't go there, Scott. I went, why? I went, because you just study to get grades. You study to get your mark. You're not interested. Mm. And it's true. I wasn't really necessarily like motivated. I didn't really leave a class and go home and read a book that I loved. I didn't. I just literally studied to get the grades and, and that was it. So I never really was reading books, so to speak, in school, apart from just to get my grades. Whereas recently, over the last, I would say, a year and a half, because I'm on this self-development journey, I've become addicted to books because I just feel like you learn so much from them. And also I'm so sort of 100 miles an hour in Scatty that the books really forced me to kind of slow down and be in the moment as well. So yeah, I get so much value from books now. I literally read the first thing I do in the morning and I just know that it can set you up for a much more positive day if you read something powerful in a book. And this is what's happening now. So many people are sending me books, right? So I turn up to the office and there's random books being delivered to the office. And I don't know who sent it me, but someone sent me a book by Earl Nightingale, who's a really famous radio host who I've actually had to Google. And it's all about his sort of motivation and, and different lessons. And that's what I'm reading at the moment. So I love it. I'll talk to you about that, about slowing down, because I've been listening to one of your episodes of your podcast, and that's really interesting, actually. So we'll, mm. we'll chat about that. And obviously, you have been very close to your mum and, and to your dad, haven't mm -hmm. you? Um, what would you say you've kind of learned from them? What traits have you inherited? Right. So my dad was our hero uh, as kids, me, Adam and Ryan, because my dad was a singer. He was Dougie James and the Soul Train. He was like massive in Manchester before the time of sort of television and social media, but he was like a Manchester legend on the sort of nightlife circuit. And he used to tell us stories of how he brought Michael Jackson over uh, and the Jackson Five. He had them staying in a little hotel in Hamforth. <laughs> and then he um, worked with Stevie Wonder and he warmed up James Brown. I actually went to watch him do that. And 
he had all these amazing stories and I was just always captivated by him. But also to see my dad on stage, he was the ultimate showman. Like he could own any room and he was just known for it. And everywhere you went, it was like Dougie James, Dougie James. So even as kids, we always had that interesting show business because of my dad. And it was Dougie and the Dougettes. So everywhere we went, we would always perform and, and get in line. <laughs> and whether it be performing Aladdin, which was random. I can show you the world. So we'd always do that as three brothers. So yeah, my dad was just a legend to us. But we actually lost contact with my dad from the age of six till 12, which was really tough. And I think even looking back now, it's had a massive impact on me. And then my mum, do you know what? It's difficult with my mum because we always took our mum for granted. And we really did. My mum was bringing up three boys and like we loved our mum, but it wasn't like, I see sons and mums have got this really like fairy tale mother bond. I see it with Caroline and Teddy. But our relationship with our mum was always a little bit sort of, I don't know, it was just, wasn't straightforward. I mean, my mum did everything for us. We had a great life and everything else. But um, I think it was just a lot for my mum. I had three boys and we were all tough. Like we were all hard work. Do you know what I mean? But my mum was such a hard worker. Uh, and it's only now that I'm looking back going, oh my God, what she's done for us. Do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. like at the time you don't appreciate it, do you? Because you've only got your mum and, and you take it for granted and you, you put your dad on this pedestal. He's never there, but you still worship him. But your mum gets the hard time. And I think looking back now, I really appreciate what my mum did for us. And she was a nurse. She worked as a cancer nurse for 20 years and she worked her way up through the ranks. And yeah, it's incredible what she's done. She's always worked so hard. But I think over the last couple of years now, because I think she's nearly two years sober now, or she is two years sober. Wow. She's become a massive inspiration for all of us because she's just a completely different person. Mm -hmm. And I think we're learning a lot from my mum now. I've followed my mum on the, on the social media yeah. and she's definitely living her best life, isn't she? Oh, honestly, <laughs> like every time she turns up anywhere, she's glowing, she's yeah. shining. She's just honestly like, if anyone's thinking about going sober, let her be the living proof of mm how much your life can change because she's a different person. I didn't want to say it then because it feels bad, but I think because my mum drank a lot through our childhood, it wasn't like she was an alcoholic, but she was a functioning alcoholic. We didn't have that connection with our mum because she was past a certain time, she'd be drinking wine. And, and I think that's where the bit of resentment came through. Mm. Whereas now it's just completely different. It's like, I've got my mum there with me all the time when I'm, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, a little bit different. I can really see that. And it, mm. we have an expression, I don't know if it's from Salford, but we, it was said in our family roots and wings. And I think that's what my mum always wanted to do for us. My dad was a bit of the, you know, the entrepreneurs, had the charisma. Mm. And my mum was in the background doing the hard graft to keep us straight. Do you know what? That, that's what I'm just, you know, even just talking about it now you don't really realise until you get a little bit older how much she actually did for us and how difficult it must have been. I always say to my mum, I went, you had twin boys. Like, I see how difficult it is with one kid. I said, was it not difficult? Like, when one kid was crying, like, what was it like? And she said, it was kind of easy because when one cried, the other cried and then she sort of kind of sorted <laughs> out together. I was like, but anyway, she literally gave us such a good life and it must have been tough. So I really respect her for that. Mm, and it's lovely you got that friendship now with her. Yeah. You, you're much closer. So just on your career, so for the cover photo of our episodes, we asked guests to have a photograph taken okay. in Manchester, a place that's important to them. And you chose Deansgate Locks. So tell me about that. Yeah, so Deansgate Locks, wow. That was such a massive chapter in my life. So after uni, I kind of fell into throwing parties. Long story short, through both my brothers who were kind of big celebrities at the time. You've got to remember, this is before reality TV, before anything else. Both my brothers were in soaps, the biggest soaps on TV, at Combination Street and Emmerdale. And my whole life changed because of it. From the age of Ryan being 16, getting his first role, and me and Adam being 12, for the rest of our lives, we were known as the Corrie brothers, like everywhere we went. I can't tell you, like, 
how much of an impact he had on our life. Like every party we went to, every door that we went, we went to. But even if we went to um, round to our friend's mum and dad's house, as soon as they knew we were Jason Grimshaw's brother, it was like, it was just an automatic like <laughs> yeah. change because he was a really big deal back then. And he still is in his own right. But I met so many people through them boys and um, so many different celebrities. And well, he used to go to Sugar Lounge and D's get locked. Don't you remember that? Mm -hmm. And like we used to mix in crazy circles and I built up this amazing network of people. And I ended up throwing a party in Wilmslow with a couple of friends and that sort of really gathered momentum. And it became this big Thursday night. And we had all the Cheshire set there, all the footballers, um, all the models and like all the high net worth individuals. And we built this brand called Avisa. And then over a two year period, we then moved it to Manchester. It was for the launch of this bar called Socora, which is part of the eclectic group, which I think still operate around London. And yeah, the rest is history. We were there for around seven years, maybe. And every Thursday night without fail, I would be there hosting this event. And we sort of attracted some of the biggest names from across the world, from like Justin Bieber to LeBron James. And then at the time, it was all about JLS and N-Dubs and X-Factor and Talisa. And so it was just a really sort of special time in my life, but also a bit of a frustrating time as well, because my lifestyle kind of escalated out of control a little bit. I became the ultimate party boy. Anything I do, I want to be the best at. So in school, I was really academic. And whether it be studying or partying, I wanted to be the best. So I literally, I'd become the ultimate party boy and I would never sort of want to go home. And I just basically lived and breathed what I did. And it was great for a certain period of time when you're young and you're carefree. But as I started to get older, like to break away from that became really difficult. So I'm glad that I did that because sometimes I give it a bit of a negative connotation. So you had a good vibe. This wasn't like a PTSD moment. You kind of, you've moved no. on. You can see the good stuff. No, in it, it was yeah. amazing because yeah. the one thing that we've got to sort of look at in our past is the lessons that we learn. And also like, even now to this day, I'm still using that same network. The same people who used to come to those parties now I'm doing business with. And it was kind of a premium night as well. So we always attracted the go-getters, the people who sort of wanted to do well for themselves. And it's so funny to see these same people who have now transcended that sort of time in their life. And now they've built businesses and the big names now on TV and footballers and everything else. So it was a massive sort of valuable part mm -hmm. of my life. Yeah. And those types of people have gone on that journey as well, I suppose, as you've done. Yeah. And I mean, I've heard you talk about like your network being your net worth. Yeah. I agree totally. And we talk about personal relationships. What do you think is important about like establishing those relationships and what makes a good one that's going to last? Well, I've just actually been looking through some of your um, values and I think integrity is one as well mm. and authenticity as well, like just being real. I think one thing that's really difficult in that sort of circle and, and the Manchester scene sometimes is that there's a lot of BS there's a thing um, that we used to always call like the Manchester scene. Like, oh, I'm not part of that scene. Mm. I'm not. So one of my biggest values was always trying to be real and then sort of using that to cipher out who was real as well. I'd had loads of associates, loads of people I'd go out on a night out with, but my circle was always kind of small in terms of my day ones, the lads I went to school with, I always sort of stuck with them and me and Adam always have the same group of mates and Ryan as well. And I think it's just about being real and, and treating people with that honesty and authenticity because I think sometimes if you're going out there to bullshit someone or promise someone something that you can't deliver or whatever else it just falls down so I think integrity is a massive one some of our guests on the podcast have been really quite honest about sometimes that we can romanticize how honorable or how much integrity we have as a city so I mean like you say there are always going to be those people around aren't they in any city in 100%. any any community yeah so it's, it's it's working out who's your tribe isn't it over that period of time 100% the one thing about Manchester that I always say is so special is the people yeah there is just a special kind of warmth like 
from the moment you get off the train back from London, you just notice the difference. <laughs> and everyone says it like Megan, who's in the room now, she just said to me, yeah, people are a lot different uh, up north. And I said, what do you mean? She's just a, a lot friendly. And, and, but it's almost like the Southerners are almost like proud that they're not friendly. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's so weird. Like, like, yeah, you're all really nice, you lot. I'm like, yeah. what's wrong with that? And actually, I've got a funny story. I went up to a guy in London once, this is years ago, and I said to him, I went, I said, mate, you, your blazer's amazing. I love it. Where's it from? And he turned around and said, what? Are you taking a piss? And I went, <laughs> no, mate. And the next thing, his friend came over and went, I said, are you Northern? And I went, yeah. He went, yeah, we don't compliment each other. Here, mate. <laughs> I, was, I was like, wow, okay. Um, but no, I definitely don't think we romanticize it. I think Manchester, there is something really special about the people, the support, the way that we get behind each other, the way that we're all kind of here to help each other as well. And I think that was something I always remember growing up is that, and even now in, in business that we're all still trying to help each other in different ways. And it's not like, all right, that person's got to that place. So I can't get there too. It's almost like, how can we rise together? So mm. I think, yeah. Yeah, I think that. And I think when we have moments of adversity, like if you think about, um, well, we set the business up one month after the IRA bomb, the city oh. it came together to support and to rebuild. And then we had the arena bomb, which we come up to five years. I mean, again, that our community, I mean, for the vigil, the whole of mm. Greater Manchester came together, didn't they, to support yeah. and, and share that pain. And I think over the past, you know, two years or so with the pandemic, we've seen some businesses and some individuals in Greater Manchester do some amazing things 100%. to really, really help out and do the bit. Manchester's just got a special sort of heart that, like I always say to everyone, like Manchester's the best city in the world. And I genuinely mean it. I, like, mm. I'm so proud to be from here. And like some people laugh and go, what? Like best city in the world? I said, it just is. I don't, I don't think I'll ever fully leave here. Um, and I don't know if that's because like I always say I've got it on toast in terms of like, <laughs> I've got it so like sort of cushy. Like there's not something really special about still going to all the places. You just feel at home. You feel yeah. comfortable. And yeah, I definitely do love Manchester. Yeah, I do. I get the buzz. You just look out of here and every time I never get sick of looking. And it also, it, what an exciting time to be mm. in Manchester now with all the sort of London brands that are coming here now. And we're really sort of, I don't know, um, we're making some noise. And I always say that Manchester is just like London, but you can walk everywhere. Mm, yeah. And it's really becoming like that now in terms of like the retails, the hospitality, the nightlife. It's just amazing. And obviously a big part of what we do at Social PR is a little bit of concierge. So Everyone who's coming to Manchester right now is just having the best time. And I think it's just an exciting time to be here. So tell me about setting up the social PR and, and mm. your journey there. And I absolutely loved the April Fool's oh. build on the side of Victoria Warehouse. Yeah. I actually, I WhatsApped it to Kate and I was going, what the hell? This is amazing. And then she was like, oh, I've just checked with him. It's an April Fool's. I was in London and I was like, oh, because I was really looking forward to watching that. Well, <laughs> so. everyone fell for it. I mean, even Fran, my ex-business partner, <laughs> messaged me. It was so embarrassing because it escalated like beyond belief. Um, but yeah, so to be fair, that concept has actually been in the making for a long time. So um, before I went to Love Island, I actually didn't want to do Love Island um, because I felt like I was a little bit above it. At the time I was in um, doing selfie sticks and everything else. I had a business. Mm. But I could see the opportunity in Manchester, I thought, because this is when PLT was first starting, Pretty Little Thing, Couture Club was first starting. The boys had just launched Tattoo, Restaurant, Adam and Drew. And I was like, we're all from the same circle and the same scene. I was like, I really wanted to bring this show together. And I called it um, Making It in Manchester because it was made in Chelsea. I was like, we're all trying to make it in Manchester. And it, it annoys me to this day because PLT at the time was like a small business. Now it's worth mm -hmm. a billion. And everyone's yeah. from that. <laughs> now Adam and Drew have got Tattoo in London, Leeds, everywhere. So anyway... I had multiple conversations with ITV about the show and they said, Scott, I'll tell you what, you go and do Love Island. 
and then we'll have a chat about the show afterwards. So literally I went and did Love Island and then I went and met them again. And literally, you know what TV's like, getting anything over the line is really difficult. And I've had about five, six different meetings about that concept. And then anyway, I wasn't in the office and the girls came up with this idea. It was almost believable. And I think the best April Fools are when it's kind of yeah, believable. And we always say like, it would make a great, great TV show because what we do is so interesting and exciting. We're working with all the biggest talent. We're working with some amazing brands. And I think it would make a great TV show, but a lot of people sort of got a little bit arsed. They were like, yeah, that's not a good April Fools. I went, why? And they went, because it could have happened. I went, well, there you go then. But what happens is when someone falls for an April Fools, they feel stupid, don't they? So then anyway, everyone gets defensive. But the social PR is a great business and it kind of was launched off the back of um, the selfie stick days. So one of my friends, Tom Curl, I don't know if you know Tom, you probably will do because he's very active around Manchester. He brought out a selfie stick one time and believe it or not, everyone was going crazy for these selfie sticks when he first brought them out. And it's a crazy story to be fair. So me, Scott Sasha from Control Club and Umar Kamani were around my house and this is how childish we used to be. <laughs> Scott Sashua threw Umar's trainers out, out in the window because we lived in a barn, right? And this, I'll know whatever lie. And then Umar goes to the bedroom and tries to throw something to Scott's out of the room and he, go, and he found, sees a selfie stick and what's this? So then when we start telling Umar about the selfie stick, he went, get Tom round here now. So then Tom Curl comes round and in the space of half an hour, we had this business formed called the selfie stick and Scott and Umar went up to China and saucy selfie sticks. And basically we create this number one brand of the selfie stick. It was the same selfie stick as everyone else, but we were just packaging it up in a different way. But what we were doing was we were utilizing all my network from the nightlife, right? So this was when Instagram just first started. No one got paid for doing anything. Everyone was really happy to post a main page picture with a seven pound selfie stick. Like literally, I remember Charlotte Geordie Shaw, millions of followers, she was posting on her main page, this selfie stick. So anyway, we got our selfie sticks into Selfridges, um, Harrods, Harvey Nichols, everywhere. And we did about 1.5 million in, in selfie sticks in the first year. Got this big warehouse. And then everyone started coming to us going, how have you done that? How did you do it? And we said, we'll utilize our contacts. So then it wasn't in my idea. I think it was Scott and Curly said, let's set up the social PR. Scott, you confront it and blah, blah, blah. And then we brought Fran involved as well. And then we also set up Couture Club in the warehouse as another side project. And then we made a big mistake of putting all our money into the segways. Remember the segways that were yeah. everywhere? And we had all the retailers open because of the selfie stick. So we got into Costco everywhere. And I was actually doing demonstrations in selfages on the segway. Like looking back as a young guy, a business owner, having your segways in selfages, I was literally doing demos, like skating around. It's mad. And we were set to be multimillionaires. Like the, the contracts were done with Costco. It was a fastest selling product of all time. And then literally, not ours, I would say, but they all started blowing up in the press in terms of like horror stories. So everyone just, all the retailers pulled all the deals. So then we had to liquidate that business. And that was so tough. Yeah. Like it was our biggest lesson in life in terms of a failure, big failure. So we, we all had our backs against the wall, but luckily we had social PR as a small business. I think we had Neighbourhood as our only client at the time. <laughs> and then, they were uh, the days. Yeah. <laughs> So we all just went off and did something different. So I kept the social PR, Scott and um, Ross kept Couture Club and I went off to, to do Love Island because I had no other choice at the time. My back was against the wall, but it was the best thing I ever did. But yeah, Love Island for me, I think it was always meant to be. I, I was speaking to someone about this earlier saying that people don't know this, but I was always the unfamous brother. So up until being 27 years of age, both my brothers were like really big stars 
And I wasn't famous in any way, shape or form. And I think people forget that now because I've got nearly a million followers and everything else. But I think I always wanted to do something like that. But because I was told I was the professor of the family, the academic one, and also my brothers didn't like reality TV. No one really liked reality TV at the time because it was seen as a bit trashy and everything mm -hmm. else. So I really had to call up my brother and say, do you mind if I do this? And he knew that it was in my heart that I wanted to do it. And then I went and did the show and literally I just felt like that was where I was meant to be. I, I always had that showman sort of ship inside of me. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, the rest is kind of history. And when your brothers were on TV and you weren't at that time in your life, how did you feel about that? Did you feel like you'd been kind of pushed into that academic role and you had to be that kind of the, the sensible one? It's only through now and some self-awareness and reflection that I'm realising how much that must have impacted me because there's no way it couldn't have. Like both my brothers were big names and I was always, oh, are you Ryan's brother? Oh, are you Adam's brother? And don't get me wrong, my brothers like made me feel like so welcome. Ryan especially, like what he did for me and Adam is incredible. He took us everywhere. Like he was 19 years of age and he was taking his 15 year old little brothers out in his oversized blazers <laughs> into Manchester. And um, he worshiped us and he took us everywhere and we had an amazing time. And I never felt left out, but I think there was something inside of me that must've been like, wait a second, I need some attention. And I think that's why I went down the nightlife route because I created my own profile through throwing parties and through being the man around town, I became a celebrity of Manchester. In Manchester, I was almost as big as the boys because <laughs> yeah. I ran the biggest night in Manchester. Yeah. So it was like, are oh, you going to Scott's night? So I think that kind of made me feel sort of adequate. Whereas without that, I probably wouldn't have felt it. So yeah, I think there's something in me that must have been affected by that part of my life. And you only really understand that as you get older and you start to reflect. There was a moment um, which makes me smile to this day where I came out of Love Island and my brother's flew over to Magaluf in true Ryan Thomas style, even though ITV said he couldn't do it. They brought all the boys over and um, we went to this hotel, the Me Hotel, I remember it. And I was able to go and meet them for half an hour. And we sat down talking and these girls walked past and these girls, they all started screaming, Scott, Scott, oh my God, it's Scott. And my brothers were stood next to me and they didn't even care for one minute about them. And I went, oh my God, what's just happened here? And that's my sort of moment of realisation that, this show was a big show and that I was finally a name or celebrity, so to speak. And I came out with like double the amount of followers on Instagram than both my brothers. And it was a surreal moment for me. And it wasn't like, oh, I told you so or anything like that. It was just more like I felt where I kind of belonged. Yeah, kind sense. of validated. Yeah, to yeah a little bit, yeah. And what was it like using Love Island as a platform for Manchester? Because again, you know, it helped to put us in the map and mm. the whole kind of Manchester personality. Yeah, I think we always get behind fellow Manx, don't we, when mm. they're on TV and the support was incredible, like when I came out. And I, I like to think that I did us proud, so to speak. And I think I sort of maintained the values that we have. Like I tried to be real in there. I tried to be a little bit honourable. I didn't want to be a snake or anything like that. And I just feel like the love and support I got from the fellow Mancunians was just unbelievable. And I think that's kind of reflected in every time you see someone on there. It's like, he's one of our own. And um, I think there's just something special about the Manchester support. And just talking about values now, what would you say has kind of driven you? Because um, obviously work ethic, I mean, you, mm. you're an absolute grafter, aren't you? Mm. You're always looking for how you can better yourself. So kind of what drives you in terms of values, would you say? I think I'm addicted to self-development. I really am. And I don't really like to use the word addicted because it's got negative sort of connotations. But I really am. Like, I feel like for me, happiness comes through progression and not standing still. And that's something that's been reflected in Food for Thoughts, which is my new business that I set up and. Yeah, I just want to reach my potential. All my life, I, I could hear this voice inside of me, especially in my 20s when I was drinking and partying every weekend. I was like, mm, 
you're destined for more than this. There's something inside of you. And I, and I was right because that year when I decided to go sober and everything else, I achieved more in that one year than I did in a decade in terms of personal growth and self-awareness. But yeah, I also think recognition for me, like still now, and I don't know if it's annoying or not, but I'm very much driven by other people's recognition. Um, I mentioned earlier that when I went to university, I didn't like it because no one really cares at university. It's all about just you working on your degree. And my mum and family didn't know what a two-one was or a first or anything <laughs> like that. So I was like, why am I even here? Whereas in school, you get constant praise from yeah. your teachers and everything else. And that's why I got all my A stars and everything else because I was just like so motivated by other people. And I think I need that. I think I need that around me, but also I need to, I need to love myself as well. And it sounds cheesy and we talk about self-love all the time, but it's something that I really need to work on because I am driven by other people. And I think that's part of my nature. I love people, I love making people happy. But sometimes you've got to pull away from that in order to look after yourself as well. Because if you've got sort of a half empty cup, you can't give enough for everyone else. So one thing I'm really trying to learn is just trying to work on myself, love myself, so that I can therefore be a better person for those people around me. And that is so true. I mean, I can see the kind of community that you create and you are a lover of people. So it was kind of, it was meant to be, wasn't it? We were talking before about our values and you said that Leaders Create Leaders was something that really stuck for you. And, and I can see the work that you do. And we'll talk in a minute about mm. food for thoughts. But, you know, you're leading a community of people. You're helping them to kind of live their best lives, aren't you now? Yeah, I think I've genuinely found my calling in life. It's so weird. Through working on myself and then talking about my journey and sharing what I've learned, I've managed to help other people. And it's so weird because even before I stopped drinking, I was filming videos trying to be honest and open about my relationship to alcohol because I knew it was going to help people, but I didn't put it out there because I was like, I'm not over it yet. I'm not solved it. And to be honest, I've still not figured out my relationship to alcohol. It's still my kryptonite. I can't seem to find that balance and it's something that really does bug me. But that's why I've called my podcast Learning As I Go because I've not got all the answers. But anything I do learn, I want to pass on as I sort of go through my journey. And I think that through working on myself and my own journey, I'm getting to help other people. And I think that's the best sort of purpose in life, right? When you're doing something that makes you feel alive and is therefore also helping other people. And I think there's a real taboo about sometimes talking about doing that work on yourself. You know, I, I work with a coach and at the same time I started to train at UP and he said to me, you know, everything you need, you have. And I didn't believe that. I felt I needed validation from people and I needed them to okay what I was doing. And it's only when I took that time to really work on actually put myself first and looking after myself and setting boundaries and non-negotiables myself that I felt that I flourished. Mm. And he said to me, you know, your world's going to light up now. And I didn't believe that. And then one day I thought everything I need to have and like you, I can see all those opportunities and all this amazing stuff that you're putting out and that you're so in flow has come because you've taken the time to do that work on yourself. Yeah, 100%. Something you just mentioned then just triggered me is uh, boundaries. And that's something that I'm really sort of poor with because I'm a people pleaser. Mm. Um, I actually had this conversation with my operations director at Social PR yesterday. Nicholas, she went, Scott, like if someone puts a meeting in your diary, you just say, yeah, I'm going to do it. <laughs> like you've got to say no. If it doesn't suit you, then it's okay to say no. And it's like, I've got, and even my therapist said it recently said, you've got three businesses, but you've got three bosses. <laughs> right. And I said, well, who's my boss? I said, you are. Yeah. And he said, if your boss was driving you, like you drive yourself, how would you feel? And I said, I'd be like, I've got a horrible boss. And it's because I'm just trying to drive all the time that I've lost my boundaries. So really what I'm trying to do now is just pull back a little bit and be comfortable saying no. And I think it comes back again to being like, 
not being so focused on what everyone else is thinking of me. If I do upset someone for postponing a meeting or anything else, and let's get it right, most people respect you when you postpone a meeting because it shows that you're busy and you've got stuff going on. But yeah, boundaries for me are, are so important. And I think balance as well. Balance is the, my most important value in life. Literally, every time um, every time it's 11-11 on the clock and I see it and you say, what do you wish? My wish is for balance. I just always say it. It's just weird. I always say balance because I've always been all or nothing and it's not, brought me happiness and I think anyone who's got a balanced life whether it be family friends business fitness health like you need to have all those things in check and I've always got a couple of them in check and then the others fall yeah. down I think sometimes though if you have a couple in check and you've got one that falls down you're all right when yeah. they all fall down and that's what I love about the honesty of your podcast and the, the name of the podcast because it is saying that we don't have to have all the answers and some people would look at you and see you as a huge role model and and think you have got it all sorted and it's a no win isn't it we've got to be honest and that journey it's not all in one direction you're going to have setbacks along the way and so what can your listeners expect to hear and learn from learning as I go so I've been blessed to have a lot of inspirational and incredible people in my life who I've learned a lot from and one thing that I think I'm really good at is that if I'm not good at something I'll hold my hands up and I'll find someone who is mm. and I'm always willing to learn I think some people are kind of sometimes they let their egos get in the way and they want to do everything and they want to sort of claim they know everything whereas with me it's a total difference like I'm sort of like I don't know that and there's someone out there who knows better than me so this podcast brings together all these kind of influential people in my life who have taught me so many different lessons, whether it be my business coach, my therapist. I'm not by any means at the end of my sort of journey or my destination. I think there's some people out there who do podcasts and stuff and it's kind of like the multimillionaires, they've achieved so much and it's kind of reflecting back, looking back. I'm kind of saying, you know what, I'm on this journey. I'm going to reach these goals. I'm going to achieve huge success, not just financially or business-wise, but in my journey for balance and self-love and happiness. But as I do that, I'm going to sort of document what I'm doing. I think sometimes instead of getting somewhere and looking back, it's kind of like, I'm like saying, you know what, I'm backing myself. And also when I put stuff out to the universe, I feel like I get it back. So a lot of the time when I'm talking or putting a positive post out on social media, I don't necessarily feel like it at the time, but it's something that I need to hear. And it's something that I need to sort of take note from myself mm. and so if I, you put it out there for yourself you, it's actually will have an effect on 100%. you I get that. yeah i get that so i think this podcast is just as much therapy for me as it is for everyone else and i said before that's what's so beautiful about being able to do this it's like it's helping me just as much as it's helping mm. everyone else and I love that episode with your um, therapist, Gareth, because I mean, mm. that is brave, isn't it? I mean, your therapist yeah. come and talk about how you were on that first day when he was trying to wrestle your phone off you. Oh, so yeah. So again, I don't know what it is with me. I've, I've never really been shy of sharing how I feel. I really do wear my heart on my sleeve. And I think me and my brothers both do that. Well, all of us do that. And don't get me wrong, the therapist thing, even when I used to tell people I've got a therapist, I used to kind of cringe a little bit, like going, are they judging me? Mainly from a business sense, I was, I was worried about what my clients might think going, if he's working for me or has he got his shit in order, is he okay? But I also realized that there's something bigger that I'm working towards and I think there's a bigger message there. And I really wanted to sort of break down all the taboo and all the judgment in society about it being sort of unmanly. And I think we do come from this and I find it really difficult because I've come from it a little bit as well. Is hustle culture and just get on with it and come on man up and you know what I'm kind of done with it like I really am I'm much more about working smart now leaning into what makes you happy and I feel like 
just being honest as well and, and, and having my therapist there, he's been, I've literally seen him for so long now and he must have seen such a development in me over the years. And listen, I still have dark moments. I still have dark times. I'll still call him. Like I need to call him this week because I, I had a little blowout the other week that kind of sent me all into disarray. And you know what? I beat myself up over it, but at the same time is I am still learning and it's okay and I need to practice what I preach. But yeah, that episode has helped so many people. And I think like you said before, people kind of sometimes put reality stars and business owners on pedestals. And yeah. I think, listen, we're all human and it's okay to share. And dispel some of the pressure, I think, that social media does bring. And it's created so much kind of mental pressure, hasn't it? And, and mental issues for people. But one thing that really resonated with me in that particular episode was that relationship with yourself and the fact that you'd come from, um, you know, your background is being in the middle of that party, being, you know, surrounded by thousands of people, but not knowing how to be on your own. Mm. And the fact that being on your own would be that you're lonely, but that journey where you then absolutely love that time that you spend on your own now you need that mm. yeah I think that's my biggest superpower now being mm. happy on my own um, because it's only through being on your own that you get to know yourself and especially when I was sober as well like literally you can't escape your thoughts you can't escape yourself and it was in that year that I, I developed such a self-awareness and I think that's another superpower that I've developed over this time is just being so self-aware but yeah there's so much value that can come from spending a time on your own and I think a lot of us are literally just following the tribe all the time. And if you're doing that, then you don't really know who you are. And how can you discover what makes you happy and what makes you tick and what makes you feel alive in life if you don't know who you are? So yeah, that's been a massive part of my journey. And he talks about that voice in your head, like you were talking before, if you had a boss, the way that you've been speaking, mm. that you speak to yourself so in some cases, he talks about that voice in your head and the fact that, you, you know, you would get rid of that. So we can be our own worst self-critic and, mm. you know, our own kind of saboteurs in a way. Mm. And when in your sobriety, you've not got the booze to get rid of that voice. Mm. You've got yeah. to listen to it yeah, or t talk it away. Yeah, it's pure escapism mm. for me when I, when I do drink, even now. The reason why there's no balance is because I'm not drinking for the taste of it. I'm not drinking for the enjoyment. I'm drinking to escape my own thoughts, my own pressure that I put on it. It's like a release. And I'm determined to try and find that release in different ways. I haven't found it yet. And I will not stop until I find it. And um, I think sometimes it's kind of easy just to fall back into the same scenarios and, say, and be around the same people because there is a massive culture in this country, especially around drinking mm. like if you get a good job you go out you get pissed if it's your birthday you go out you celebrate you get smashed so it's kind of like everything that revolves around that and for me i'm now trying to find different ways where you know what it's not about even escaping now because i feel like this is something i've learned recently you've got to kind of sit with your emotions rather mm. trying to escape them you've got yeah. to sit with your emotions and digest them and for example the other week i wanted to go out um I didn't want to go out, but I was on social media seeing everyone out partying and, and in the beer gardens. And then I started feeling like I wanted to go out and I was like, wait, what's going on here? So I tried to just sit with my emotion. Usually it's just like, right, I'm going to go and drink. But instead I went, wait a second, how am I feeling right now? And I realized I was feeling lonely and I wanted to be around people because I'm a people person. And I was like, right, okay, Scott, you're going to have to sit with this emotion. And I literally sat with it and I got in the bath and then I swear, <laughs> sorry, I was a bit too much information. But I basically sat with that emotion, right, right, this is going to pass. I'm going to be okay. Then I put on a podcast. I think I put on Jimmy Carr's podcast with um, Stephen. And then I just overcame it. And I was like, wow, that's the first time I did it. Whereas usually I'd not dissect the emotion. I'd just be like, right, I need to go out. I need to get smashed. I need to be around people. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So instead, it's kind of just having that self awareness now to be one with your emotions mm, definitely there's mm. a great book you might have read it called untethered soul by michael singer 
and it's amazing and my coach Danny Donachie who you should meet I've got okay. to introduce you he gave it to me about five years ago and I've read it every single year for five years and every time I read it I realise that I'm getting further to unconditional happiness and that point where everything you need you have so on those times when you do feel lonely you kind of lean into yourself and you know you've got yourself amazing yeah, yeah I'll, I'll let you have that I'll 100%. send that book to you to join the ones that you get all the time and what would you say in terms of learning as you go what's Manchester taught you what all being a Mancunian um that anything is possible I feel like we've achieved some great things like from one of my best friends Umar Kamani what he's done with Pretty Little Thing and the Boohoo group and then the football teams here like being brought up as a Manchester United fan in the year of class 92 Ben Thornley used to live at the end of my road and I remember Gary Neville actually mm. obviously he's a friend of yours mm. it's a funny story Gary Neville was walking out of Ben's house and I was a young kid and I went, Gary, can I shake your hand? And then I had a glove on and I went, oh, mate, let me take my glove and shake your hand again. <laughs> but anyway, it's just that magic of Manchester that anything's yeah. possible from all the big artists that have come out of here. And I just think like it's a great city. Like the stuff that we've achieved is just incredible. And I think it's just a great platform to create anything that you want to create. Mm. And um, I feel like with social PR and food for thoughts, being from Manchester is a massive advantage. Mm. And, and it's it's we are a global player. And in terms of relationships with other people, who would you say stands out for you in terms of who's really supported you along the way, either you know from a business point of view or personally? So many different people. Like if we go back to the days of even like Scott Sashera and Ross at Couture Club, we're still doing business together now. Then obviously Tom Curl, he went to PLT, but he's a consultant now. He's got his fingers in different pies. And all of us, even Fran now, even though Fran's not my business partner anymore, like we're still close and we talk about stuff and. I can call anyone. I think, like I said before, um, my network is my net worth. And that phone book now that I've got is invaluable. And I know literally if I, if I need anything, I can call anyone for anything yeah. in Manchester, whether it be James Cohen for tickets for Victoria <laughs> Warehouse or I do Drew Jones's head in all the time asking him for last minute bookings. <laughs> Table. He's like, he's like, Scott, I'm the, I'm the owner. I went, I know, mate, come on, mate. Like, we used to party together. Come on. <laughs> and what would you say has been your biggest lesson so far as the one that particularly stands out to you? I think there was that defining moment where I nearly lost one of my biggest clients when I went to a chairman's luncheon in London and I got so drunk, I got escorted out and I nearly lost my business, the respect of my business partner at the time. And it was the first time that my relationship with alcohol had affected my work. It always affected my social life and so to speak, but not never my business that I worked so hard for. And I went to a really low place. And I knew I had to make a change. And that's when I flew out to Abu Dhabi on my own. I was full of anxiety and I was beating myself up so much, but I knew I had to make a big change. And I picked up this pebble and I walked into the ocean and I still got the pebble. I actually was stroking this pebble this morning. <laughs> um, and I said, right, that's it. I'm going to do 12 months. And it was that one decision. And I've said before that I'm going to stop drinking, but this was like D1. And I always say to people when they're trying to make a change, like make it one, it's just one decision and not like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm half going to do it or I'm going to do a month here or there. No, no, it's like, I'm going to do this. And that was the defining moment for me. And it was that dark moment, a dark feeling inside of me that kind of powered me forward and drove me forward to that year. I went on to achieve things that I've never thought was possible. I, I, um, I got in the best shape of my life. I took over the social PR fully on my own, which I never thought would be possible. I launched Food for Thoughts. And yeah, it was just an incredible time for me. So I think sometimes our darkest moments can be our most mm. defining moments. Yeah, I'm reading another book that you should read. Okay. It's exactly that. Um, and I was feeling a bit low last Friday, bizarrely, because my daughter just moved into town 
my son was out with his mates and I'd been out for lunch with the team and I kind of got home at six o'clock and I was like, what now? And it was fine. But bizarrely, Danny had had an urge to post through my letterbox a book called The Gift. Right, okay. And it's about how all the best light stuff comes out of the dark. And I sat and read that the whole Friday night. And I do think that I think it's when we have those deep moments of adversity, we get the stretch, don't we? And the great things happen. So that's amazing. And in terms of your goals for 2022, then what's the plan? You've got so much going on. You've got three businesses. Mm -hmm. What's the plan? And where are you going to carve out some time for you? Um, That's a very good question. (laughs) Um, I think my biggest goal is to be happy. And I did this recently where... I actually wrote down all the things that make me happy in life. And it was simple things like walking my dog, making TikToks with my nephew and niece, like all the simple things that don't cost money. So I'm like, mm. wait a second, why do I need multi-millions then? Because I've got it in my head that I need to achieve that. And you know what? I still want to achieve that because I feel like I want more so I can give more. Mm-hmm. And I think I want to create generational wealth in my family. Like I love my dad to bits, but he left us a, a bill, not a will. because he, <laughs> he left us free resources that we're still paying for. <laughs> But I want to lead, I want to create generational wealth. I want to I want to do that for my family. But um, yeah, I think my personal brand is something that I really want to work on. And when I say my personal brand, I mean the platform that I create to be able to talk to as many people as possible and help as many people as possible through self development. I want to become known for that, but with a sort of a different spin on it. And because, like I said, it's like I'm on the journey. Um, but then also I need to meet someone. I need to meet a nice girl. Um, I need to put some time into that. My business coach, uh, Mr. David Poxon, he actually put as one of my actions, <laughs> start dating. And it makes sense. He said, you can't have all this without that. And I've literally used my business and everything else as an excuse, not an excuse, but I've just been so focused on myself and mm. so driven that I need to start getting in the mix. Mm. Um, <laughs> oh, that sounded so wrong. But anyway, you know what I meant. You but do I, have to make that as part of like one of the, the pillars of your life, don't you, if you want to do that? You've got to put work into an area. Mm. The same way you've got to put work into your business, you've got to put work into your, your home life. I've got a twin brother who's been married for 12 years and he's got two kids and a dog and uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I'm a single guy getting around on my own and, and listen, I love it. And I'm not unhappy, but I think to be fair, this year is the first year where I felt a lot of social pressure because of, the, of my age. People, I feel like a lot of people, and you know what? It's not even that. I think that people are looking at me now going, what's his excuse now? Why has he not met someone? Because before it was like, he wasn't ready. And I get that and everything else. And to be fair, I think you're right. I've got to be open to it now. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. So I think meeting someone, starting my own family, even though I love kids, but wow, I've just come back from being at Ryan and Lucy's and the kids are just hard work. Um, I get all the best bits. I get to give them back. back. Yeah. Um, But I don't have to worry about that yet because I've got to meet someone first. But yeah, I think taking some time for me as well. And and you know what? Doing the things in business and in my life that I enjoy, it's really difficult to do that as as a director or as a a co-founder because you get put into areas that you don't really enjoy doing. Like I don't love sitting there talking about finances. Mm. I love bringing in the clients, (laughs) connecting the dots, being social, doing what I do best. And I just want to try and make sure I invest into the right people around me. And like you said before, leaders create leaders. And that's one of your values. That's something that I'm really sort of all about because you want your businesses and you want what you stand for to transcend you as well. And I really want to sort of invest into the right people around me so I can live the life that I want to live. Definitely. And I love that, um, that you're thinking about your legacy already. But you're creating it in terms of all the lives that you're changing through Food for Thoughts in particular. You know, you're, you're changing their lives and you're putting great disciplines in place and they're helping to meet new friends. And, you know, that in itself, there's legacies being created every day there. Yeah, so Food for Thoughts is the embodiment of my lifestyle 
in a business and <laughs> that's why it's never ending so we start with nutrition and food but then it knocks on to mental health and yeah. fitness and challenges and community and events and parties and it's just such a unique and exciting movement for me it's not a business it's a movement of self-development progression and we are inspiring people to come out of their comfort zones and it's because it starts with us. It starts with me and the, my co-founder, Eden. It starts with the coaches. And then it's now being sort of lived and carried out through our incredible members. And honestly, to see the growth and the way that they're shining, being part of something as well is really special. I think especially after COVID and the mm. pandemic, like we all want to feel part of something. We had some members who were just basically saying like, they just never want to leave. They call themselves lifers. And I was like, what is it that sort of brings everyone together? And I can't really put my finger on it, but it's just that sense of belonging, mm. I think. So just quick fire then, if you're in a sociable mood with friends in Manchester, where do you most like to go? To be fair, I really like Albert Schloss. Um, I feel like they have done an incredible job. But like I said before, I'm trying not to go out into those scenarios anymore. But in terms of vibe, atmosphere, on a consistent, you could go in there on a yeah. Monday night. Albert Schloss is just a vibe. And I love going places where it's not pretentious. And even though I used to be part of a kind of pretentious scene in Manchester, which is kind of ironic, as you get older, you're not really bothered about that. And I think Albert Schloss is um, sort of a great representation of bringing business people, um, quirky people from Northern Quarter vibes, everyone together into Albert's Lost for live music. And I think it's a great sort of uh, example of what Manchester is all about. Yeah, they've nailed it, haven't they, there? Yeah. A lot of people are coming up for football and they go, where do we go? And just go, just go to Albert's Lost. If you've got a contact form, share it because I still not got a contact for Albert's Oh, really? It's the only place there where I don't get You heard it here. (laughs) And if you need to get off grid and clear your head out of the city centre, where do you go in Greater Manchester? Um, So... I live in South Manchester and the reason why I live in South Manchester is because it's like a little escape, even though it's only about 15 minutes from town, mm. but it's just kind of countryside vibes, so to speak, Wilmslow, Cheshire anyway. But just walking with my baby Juno, with my dog, I call her a baby, but she's not even a baby anymore. But yeah, I just like getting out with my dog, Macclesfield Forest, somewhere like that, just literally where it's just me and, and shut off time. And also, um, I'm a sucker for a steam and sauna. <laughs> like if I want to go and switch off it's the only yeah. place you can't physically take your phone yeah. so I literally go into the steam sauna and it's weird because when you've not got your phone with you and when you're just in the moment you actually end up having some amazing conversations mm. in these steamers it's weird but yeah long walks with my dog and spa days they're my happy places that sounds great and when we all have to have a day off so when you have a day off what do you order at the chippy oh the chippy <laughs> wow um, as a kid I was always a sausage and chips kind of guy with a balm, I'd always have like bread and butter. Like I love like bread and butter, but I reckon now I'd probably go for the fish and chips just because I'll kid myself that having a bit of protein in the fish <laughs> will be me half sticking to my plan. But I reckon there's about a thousand calories in one of those battered fish, right? <laughs> what I do is I do that and then I take all the batter off and then I eat the, yeah. I eat the fish and the peas and then I eat the batter after. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it, it never works out for me. Um, and um, what do you miss most about Manchester when you're not here? I think for me it's that it's comfortable, isn't it? When I'm in Manchester, I'm just like, oh, I just mm. feel like I can walk around selfages and, and, and around there it just feels like there's no idiots about I don't even though there probably is I just feel safe I just feel war a level of warmth there's a level of warmth about yeah, Manchester and it just feels like home and it always will do absolutely As somebody I can't remember who it was on the, on the podcast said that their best feeling ever is when they're in an airport 
and they get to the airport, maybe from in the states or something like that, and they hear a Manc accent because they're on the they're on the plane and they're in the in the lounge waiting to go, and they're having to hear Manc accents abroad. It just like you know takes you straight oh, home. It, it does. Even when people ask you when you're on holiday where you're from, you say Manchester, and it, and you go Manchester United. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's just every like time. it's just funny how a football club can just put us on a map everywhere. <laughs> you know, people are going to know Manchester. Exactly. It, like it doesn't matter where you go, people know Manchester, yeah. whether it be for the football or whatever, just for being a great city and. and Again, it's just another reason to be proud. There's loads of reasons to be proud, aren't mm. there, the city? And so finally, what would you say to somebody who feels that they're like, stuck in a certain set of behaviours or patterns and they just feel that they, that they need to make that change in their life? The first step is self-awareness and something that I've been doing a lot recently and I'll be doing more now. I've got my new <laughs> Roland Transfield journal. Very swanky, by the way. Think, sort of, write down how you're feeling. Because when you write something down, it gives you the opportunity to get a level of distance from it and a little bit of clarity and also a bit of a new perspective. And I always thought, when people told me about journaling, I was like, I'm not journaling. Like, it takes me back to Doug Funny on Nickelodeon, if anyone remembers him, a little <laughs> journal and pork chop. But anyway, honestly, I've got so much value from it now. Like, writing down how I'm feeling is game changing because you, you write down all these problems and things that are whirling around in your head. And you, when you've written them down, you go, wait a second, there's nothing here I can't deal with. There's nothing that I can't step-by-step work my way through. And it's been a game-changer for me, but also writing down what I'm grateful for as well. And it's funny because I did this yesterday for the first time and I literally wrote down, I had one day in my social PR office and so many good things were happening. And I actually wrote down yesterday all these amazing things that came my way and I was just literally smiling going, wow, that was actually a sick day. Like, <laughs> that was an amazing day. And you never take the moment. Mm. Like if I didn't do that, I would have gone to bed going, that was an average day. I actually wrote down, I think, oh, what, what, this, 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 this. Like, like I did boxing yesterday for the first time in ages. Um, we just signed some new talent. If I didn't write them down, I would have just gone, that was a normal day. Yeah. And I just went to bed smiling. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Journaling. 100%. And like you say, it's the small things, isn't it? And being appreciative. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So thanks so much for sharing your time with me today. You know how busy you are and um, and I've really loved it. I've come away inspired. Um, as always, it's great to see the work you're doing. And I think you're, the legacy that you're creating in terms of all those people you're bringing together. So thanks for helping us to build this city. Thank you so much. And honestly, what you're doing is incredible, especially for Manchester. So yeah, I'm really <laughs> grateful for, for having me here today and I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Amazing. Scott Thomas helped build this city by connecting Manchester's party people, by demoing segways in Selfridges, and by learning as he goes. We Built This City will be back on the 12th of May with the Chief Executive of Manchester Camerata, Bob Riley, and I'll be recording that podcast from the Camerata's new home, Gorton Monastery. If you want to find out more about how Roland Dransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Dransfield or Twitter at RDPR Tweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. And in the meantime, please remember to rate, review and follow We Built This City. Thank you.